I want to start out this morning just painting kind of four different pictures for you, kind of tell you four different stories. And I just want them to kind of let them paint a picture for you of, of, uh, of four different Christ followers, four different experiences. And I want you to tell me if you think that's normal or if you think that's abnormal, okay? So how about that? First story, this, and this is from all, all over the place, but this one comes about 250 years ago, a little more than. Two young Moravian men heard, heard about an island in the West Indies, sort of the Caribbean, which was virtually owned by one plantation owner, and he brought in tremendous amounts of slaves. He was known to be horrifically brutal. He hated the slaves that came in there. And, uh, and he treated them terribly. In fact, he hated them so much he wouldn't let any Christian missionary or pastor step foot on the island because he didn't want them to find life in Christ. And so uh, these two men heard, heard about this. They were cut to the heart, and they started praying and, and, and saying, God, what can we do? Somebody's got to do something. They tried to, to, to get in and, and get onto the island. They couldn't. The only way they could think of to go there and share with the slaves about the good news about Jesus, the only way they could, they could see to make a difference was to sell themselves into slavery. And so they tried that. <laughs> they, went, they, they tried to sell themselves into slavery as a way to get on the island. As it turns out, the, uh, the plantation owner would not buy them, right? But they finally, after, after years of, of working, uh, found a way to get on the island, uh, basically lived as indentured servants kind of thing, and, and, uh, and shared with these people, started a church uh, with the people that lived on this island. Uh, and, I mean, incredible story. The, the, just of them sharing the good news about the Savior Jesus with people that desperately need it. But anyway, uh, as they were leaving and being sent out from this, they came out from their, their little town that they were a part of uh, to say goodbye uh, to their families, knowing that they would pretty much never see them again, that likely they would give their lives in pursuit of this venture. And uh, it's interesting, the last words their families heard from them, uh, one of the men cr- cried out from the ship uh, as they were sailing away, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering, which is kind of a weird thing to say uh, in, in some ways, and yet th- that kind of became the rallying cry uh, of these two young missionaries who lived, who over the, next, the course of the next 50 years before the next missionaries arrived, led 13,000 converts to Christ and baptized them on this island, as well as planted churches on the islands of St. Thomas, St. Croix, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. Over the next 150 years, this would become the primary missionary sending force in the world sending out thousands of missionaries all over the world from this spot. I hear stories like that and think, man, does that seem like the normal Christian life to you, that you'd be willing to sell yourself into slavery so that others could find Christ? Or does this just seem like, what in the world? These guys are a little bit off the rockers, right? I mean, what? Picture number one. Picture number two. This one's a little graphic, so I apologize in advance. But in 1980, true story, Archbishop Romero was calling his congregation to worship, and there was a war raging in his country. The government had told him, if you have church, we'll kill you. If you call your people to worship, it will cost you your life. This bishop called his people to worship. He called them to church. He preached the message. He, he, he got up at the end of the message and said to his people, it is the, I better 
look at this so I get the quote right. It's the bottom line of the Christian faith to worship God and to give our lives as living sacrifices. When then he went over to the communion table, he picked up the cup and he repeated the phrase. It's the bottom line of the Christian faith to worship God and to give our lives as living sacrifices. As he said those words, men from the back stood up with machine guns and killed him on the spot. Picture number three. I was at a conference, I don't know, maybe five or ten years ago. Uh, had a guy by the name of William Pollard was sharing there. He, uh, at the time, I'm not sure if he still is or not, but was the CEO, uh, kind of the chairman of, um, of Service Master, a company that's pretty big. I mean, it's kind of all over the place. But uh, he's also a Christ follower, and he ended up sharing part of a story, and it kind of came out on accident. He wasn't, like, trying to share it or whatever, but he was talking about generosity, and he, he ended up saying, talking about a time when he felt like God had had spoken to him just real clearly, and he, he'd been heading in one direction, sort of building up his company, enjoying the fruits of his labor, right? Just enjoying wealth and enjoying all the spoils of that, and felt like God broke him of that and said, I'm not giving you the money for you. And so from that point forward, he made a commitment and lived this out to live on a reverse tithe, he lived on 10% of his income and 90% of all the income that came in, including bonuses, including everything, pre-tax dollars, he would give away and, and primarily give back to the local church. I hear, I hear stories like that. I think, is that normal? Does that sound normal to you? That people would be willing to do this or does it sound like crazy talk? Story number four, last one. I remember, it's probably like, I don't know, 10 years ago now or something, but I remember, I, I never watched this kind of TV, but I happened to flip on Dateline for some reason, and, uh, and I think it was Dateline, it's one of those kind of shows, anyway, one of those news kind of investigative uh, kind of thing. And I remember hearing about a young woman who in her 20s, uh, she was a Christ follower, in her 20s felt the call of God to go as a missionary to Afghanistan to, uh, to care for uh, hungry and starving uh, people in the region, and she, and, and she went to, to minister to them and to share Christ with them. And, and uh, in Afghanistan, in that era, uh, it's illegal to share your faith. It's, it's illegal to share about Christianity. And so this girl and one other missionary were arrested. They went through a trial, were found guilty of proselytizing, and were sentenced to death. I mean, it was a crazy kind of story. And, uh, and so uh, they went through a trial. Obviously, at this point... The parents uh, get the media involved, right? They start getting all this kind of stuff. And finally, the American government takes notice, gets involved, and end up, ends up getting these two young women released, these two young Americans. They fly them back home. There's, you know, you can imagine their family is so relieved. They're so relieved. It's, a, it's an amazing celebration and, and that kind of thing. Well, not long after 9-11 happened, and uh, the, after that war, right, in, in, in Afghanistan and in, in the country. And um, several years later, as the country is sort of once again becoming open, like to, to, to foreigners, you're able to kind of get in there again after, after some of the war stuff had calmed down anyway. Um, she started sensing God calling her again and saying, you know what, what about these broken people? What about these people back in Afghanistan that need Jesus? And she kind of felt like God had said, well, she, she was com 
convinced, compelled to say, I got to go. I've got to go back and minister to and bring the love of Jesus to people that desperately need it in Afghanistan. And this Dateline investigative report was all about this. So this, the journalists uh, that were involved in this, uh, the, the first president of the missions agency that had sent her over the first time, her parents, they were all on national TV basically ridiculing her, proclaiming like, you have to be an idiot, right? You almost gave your life once. Why in the world would you go back? It's not normal, right? It's not normal. The interesting thing is, so they had, they had clips of her interspersed responding to some of these questions, some of these criticisms, and she was, I mean, it was amazing. She was gracious. She was patient. She was humble in the face of these accusations, in the face of all these kinds of things, and, and yet she was continually resolved, saying, I, I get that it doesn't make sense, but God has called me to go, and go I must. Four different stories, four different pictures. My question is, is that what comes to mind for you when you think of what it looks like to live as a Christian? Or does it just seem fanatical? Does it just seem like you'd have to be nuts to live that way? I, I think so often we tend to look at individuals like these four or five that I've mentioned, and, and we just think to ourselves, that's not normal. That's not what normal Christianity looks like. That's not what normal people do. You'd have to be crazy to do that kind of thing. They don't give their lives. They don't sell themselves into slavery. They don't give their money and possessions 90% of it away. That's insane. They don't put up with insults. They don't leave behind family and friends for the sake of Christ. That's just not normal. We tend to think that people like that are just religious fanatics. Maybe a few sandwiches short of a picnic, right? Who in their right mind would live that way? Well, we're on our fifth and final week of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called I Believe in God But. And, uh, and in this series, we're trying to tackle some of the issues that tend to create stumbling blocks for us in our walk with God. Some of those things that tend to hold us back from experiencing the life that God made us for, the, God, the life that God has in store for us. Because as we've talked about, the stats are pretty clear. 90% of Americans, right, believe in God. 90% of us would say, oh yeah, I believe, and I, I believe there's a God. Now, we believe that even despite, uh, like, the last decade, which has been riddled with books and accusations, people like Richard Dawkins that are, that are taking pot shots at anything that has to do in the realm of faith. So much uh, that we see in the media, so much that comes out in, in magazines and on Facebook and on everywhere you look is, is taking pot shots at it. And yet still 90% of us say, I, be, I believe, I, I, I believe in God. And yet we still have so many questions. There's still so many doubts. There's so much uh, so many things that come up that we're like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I, how, do I, how do I reconcile that with myself? And so every week we've been trying to take one of these stumbling blocks. We're trying to address it and take a look at what does God have to say about this and does he bring clarity on the subject? So the first week we talked about faith and doubts. We looked at some of that stuff. We've looked at um, just questioning the Bible. We talked about that last week. I believe in God, but I'm not sure about the Bible. Two weeks ago we, we talked about I believe in God, but I'm not so sure I believe in the church. <laughs> I don't believe in man-made religion and, and, and stuff like that in the church, and we, we talked about God's perspective in the midst of that three weeks ago. We talked about, I believe in God, but I just want to be happy, right? I, I just want to just kind of do my own thing and go my own way and just whatever makes me happy kind of stuff. Today, I want to wrap up the theories by, 
by uh, uh, talking about this and just saying, I believe in God, but I don't want to be a fanatic, right? I don't, I don't want to go crazy. I don't want to be all in. I want, I want to follow. I believe in God, but I just want a safe little version of Christianity, a nice little box of Christianity where I'm in control, where everything can still be safe and happy and nice, right? I believe in God, but I don't want to be a fanatic. And I don't know about you, but... I, I think I, I experience this sometimes. I think all of us probably wrestle with this sometimes of like, I'm not sure uh, if I want to be all in. Sometimes we don't want to be the fool. Sometimes we don't want to be the fanatic, the crazy Jesus follower type thing. And I get this. I think sometimes we hear phrases like that. I, I, you know, I believe in God, but I don't want to be a fanatic. Sometimes we hear that, and I think there's something legitimate to it. Like sometimes, for instance, uh, I don't know why this is, but sometimes religious, churchy kind of people are the meanest people there are. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes, right, sometimes they're just, they're kind of haters. They're mean. Yes, they're judgmental. They call names, all this kind of stuff. And they're just mean. For some reason, they use, they use their religion or their Christianity as an excuse just to shred people. And I look at that and I think, man, I don't want that either. I don't, I've been on the receiving end of that, and it's not nice. I can remember the, the first uh, year Tina and I were married, we were serving at a, at a church, little church, out in the country, kind of outside of Rockford, not far from Rockford, Illinois. And uh, I did youth and worship uh, for the church. And part of what I was doing, and this was with the blessing of, of uh, the leaders of the church and stuff, is I was bringing transition in worship style from an incredibly kind of, forgive me, but an incredibly stale uh, traditional church model that they'd had for 125 years and trying to bring transition to at least including some more uh, kind of modern or more, more contemporary sort of uh, worship style. And I have to say, and that's not me taking pot shots at traditional or anything else, but that was part of my job. And I can remember uh, it went pretty well for a little while. <laughs> and then Tina and I started getting hate mail. I kid you not, hate mail from Christians. And, and actually we've gotten hate mail and phone calls and stuff throughout our ministry over the last 20 plus years uh, of ministry together. It's crazy. We've had people on the answering machine or voicemail that have cussed us out in the name of Christianity, right? In the name of Jesus. Some, I mean, some people would attack, uh, we get mail that would attack me, that would attack my wife, that attacks my kids, stuff like that. And you're like, Okay, you're just mean. Like, what, what, are you, what is this about even? I get if you're upset that, that the transition from worship style is going too quickly, or I get if you're upset about something in the church, but let's keep it about that, right? Like, why are you attacking my kids or my wife or my whatever? Some of you have had that kind of experience too, right? And sometimes we look at that, we're like, well, if that's what it looks like to be a Jesus follower, I want nothing to do with that. And to be honest, that's legit right? That's not what we're talking about today. If that's the picture that comes to mind of being a fanatic, that's not the kind of fanatic I want to talk about today. That's not, that's because, because that doesn't look much like Jesus at all. In fact, some of Jesus' harshest confrontations that you, that are recorded in the pages of this book come with people like this, with the religious people that are haters getting in the way of others finding new life in Christ. So sometimes there's legit reasons like that. Sometimes, another legit reason is sometimes uh, we get confused between following Jesus and just being weird, right? Because there are some fanatics out there that, that are just weird. It's not because they look like Jesus. It's not because they're following or obeying. They're just kind of like just choosing to be weird for whatever reason. And that's kind of not what we're talking about either. 
I mean, all of us kind of have probably some bizarre images uh, that come into our mind when we, into our minds when we think about devout or passionate or fanatical followers, don't we? I mean, I'm sure. Okay, you guys are not giving me much feedback today, but don't you have some weird images? Can you picture guys with like sandwich boards that are on, that are on sidewalks telling people about how terrible they are and the whole world's going to go to hell and they seem pleased about that? Or I mean, you know, something like that. Sometimes they're just weird. Sometimes, sometimes church people say, just kind of adopt this brand new language. And like so that the rest of the world doesn't even know what the heck they're talking about, right? Like, uh, as a pastor, I get this all the time. You and you'll just be walking by somebody like, "Hey, how's it going?" They're like, "Well, I'm sanctified. I'm born again. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost." Or you know, something like that. You're like, what was that? Like, I don't even like. Sometimes people, again, because I'm a pastor, people like spout some of these things out, like because they know these are like churchy words and they're supposed to use them, and they won't even make sense. <laughs> you're like, what? I don't even understand what you're saying. Sometimes, it, sometimes, when we think of fanatics, we're, we're, it's it's not so much that, that that's what following Jesus looks like. It's just that we're kind of weird <laughs> sometimes, right? That that happens. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about either. We all know it, uh, but we all know people like that. We are people like that probably at times, but that's not what we're talking about. What I want to kind of zero in on today uh, has more to do with us holding on to control. It has more to do with just wanting a little bit of church and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Christianity kind of mixed into our nice, comfortable little lives. Sort of like I believe in Jesus, but I don't really want to be all in. I believe in God, but I don't want to be crazy. I, want, I don't want to go crazy like that. I don't want to get my money. I don't want to have to have him mess with my sex life. I don't want to have to, I don't want to be, Lord, please don't send me on a missions trip. Right? I, don't want to, I don't want to be uncomfortable or have to stretch or change or have him mess with the things that are important in my life. I believe in God, but I don't want to stay safe in my little comfy bubble. And I think in, in some ways, that's sort of the Christianity of America, isn't it? In some ways, we're like, God, I, I believe in God, but I don't want him to mess with me. I don't want him to mess with my life. I just want a little bit of Jesus. I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to go all in. I don't want to be crazy. And again, I, I think that's something that probably hits pretty close to home. I want you to, take, I want you to be bold, and you're going to have to talk to the person next to you. So talk, turn to the person next to you and say, I think he's talking about you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think this one hits all of us, right? I think it hits all of us sometimes because I think we can all be guilty of this. But today I want to look at a passage, a pretty lengthy passage from God's book, straight from the lips of Jesus. Because while it may be that we believe in God, but we don't want to be fanatical, I'm not so sure that real biblical Christianity leaves room for that. I think what we'll see from the lips of Jesus is that we can be a fanatical follower of Christ or not one at all. Oh boy, feel that? <laughs> but that's where we're going. I mean, that's, this is going to be straight from the list of Jesus. We're going to look at this. We're going to wrestle with this. And again, I'm not talking about being weird. I'm not talking about, you know, just for weird sake. I'm not talking about uh, being mean and haters and that kind of stuff. But I'm saying authentic following of Jesus is going to look fanatical at times. Because following Jesus is an all-in, surrendered sort of experience. Uh, I looked at, just a fair warning, we looked at one or two verses of this in the marriage series, so I referenced it. Uh, you might be like, I think we just read that recently, but we're going to actually look at the, the full passage here today. 
uh, it's Luke 14, 25 through 35 is where we're going to start. And uh, again, straight from the lips of Jesus, I want you to listen to his words and ask yourself, is he describing a fanatic? Okay, let's, let's look at this together. Luke 14, 25 says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It goes on and says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if, I, if uh, you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go out to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send out a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. He says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the uh, soil nor for the manure pile. It's, it's thrown out and trampled by men. He ends by saying this, this is classic Jesus, right? Whoever has ears, let him hear. He's saying, if, if you're able to receive this teaching, receive it. If you have ears to hear, then grab onto this truth. All right, now just a quick reminder. Uh, I say this every time I preach this passage. How many of us think that uh, Jesus is teaching that in this passage that we should literally hate our wives, our husbands, our moms, and our dads? Raise your hand. <laughs> yeah. Yes and no, right? I mean, that's the, that's the complexity of this deal, right? He's using what, what, what's called hyperbole in this teaching. It's meant to contrast two things. It's a way of saying that you should love one of these things so much that in, com in comparison, in contrast, it'd be like you hated the other. You're saying, I love one thing so much more than the other. And he's using this to illustrate God, what, where God is supposed to fall in the order of things. He's like, your devotion, your love, your focus, your heart should be so fixed on God, so in love with him, so right devoted to him that in comparison, he's the number one by far. There's not even a close rival. It's like number one is up here and everything else is sort of down here because he is so great because of his supremacy in our life. Now that doesn't take away from the strength or the shock factor of Jesus' statement here. Because what's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you claim to follow Jesus, he's saying, then I want the number one spot in your life, right? I want by far. I want to be the clear decision maker, the chief decision maker in everything. I want to be the most important person to you. I want, I want all of you. I want every compartment, every decision, everything submitted to my will, each and every part following Jesus, submitted to Jesus. He wants to be the most important thing in our lives, the one that influences everything else. He wants us to desire his pleasure and his will and his values even more than our own. He wants to be the one thing that influences everything else, how we handle our money, what we do for fun, our character, our job, our family, our decisions, and on and on. He wants to lead your life and mine and have no other rival. Nothing else should even come close. He wants to be preferred Above all, he wants to be loved 
above all and for your good and for my good friends. That's how our lives are meant to be lived. It's foreign to us. It sounds harsh, and I get that. I'll come out and balance it later. It sounds harsh, but literally, this is the best way to live. There's nothing better. For our good, for his glory, he expects full devotion. He wants us all in. He calls us to take up our crosses and follow him. It's a picture of dying to our will, of of kind of putting our desires and rights to the side instead prioritizing his rights and his desires for us. Does that sound pretty fanatical or does that sound normal? You can talk in church. What do you think? Does that sound pretty fanatical? It sounds incredibly fanatical. It's like if you don't, in comparison, if you don't prioritize and love and put me in the number one spot in your life, if, if it doesn't, if, if I don't have the clear, if I'm not the clear winner in your life, so much so that it seems like you hate everything else, then you're not my disciple. Some of us might be, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not claiming to be his disciple. I'm just claiming to be a Christian. A little point of fact, Jesus never called you to be a Christian. He never used the word Christian. In fact, it was used, the, the, the word Christian doesn't show up until the book of Acts after Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and is ascended back into heaven. It's used as, as a picture, right? Christian meaning little Christ, because the disciples were outliving. When people saw them, when people that weren't a part of the church looked at these followers of Jesus, said their actions, the way they love, the way they talk about God, the way they serve, the way they're humble, the way everything, it reminds us so much of Jesus that they called them little Christ. Because they were living as disciples. Jesus called us to be disciples. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, then here's the path, right? You got to be all in. You got to be all in. That's the way it works. It's a fanatical sort of thing. Look again at verse 33. Man, this is just crazy talk. It says this. He says, Jesus says, in the same way, those of you that do not give up, what's that word? Everything. Everything cannot be my disciples. Do you think he really means everything? I mean, come on. We don't want to go overboard, do we? I mean, come on. Everything. What's the cost according to Jesus? Everything. Let me just ask this question. According to Jesus' definition of a disciple, how many disciples is he walking out there every day in our country? You see a lot of little Christs walking around? Do you see people that are, that, that, are, that are so in love with Jesus, so focused on him that he's easily the clear winner, that you start seeing his values and his love and his life getting lived out in the... Do you see that a lot in the people around you? Let, let, let's bring this a little closer to home. Do you see that a lot in your own life, in your own heart? And probably the answer is a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Yes. No, that's, that's okay. Let's be honest, right? I mean, that, that's kind of where we stand. These, it's a harsh teaching. It's a, these are hard words. If you want to be my disciple, you got to be all in. Let me ask one more clarifying question in terms of how we're, how we're doing with this. Would your calendar and your checkbook reveal that you're living as a disciple of Jesus, that you're all in with him? I think, like I said before, I think probably what's more normal 
in our society, what I see a lot of these days is I see a lot of people that love other things, that they love approval from others and they seek their own good. They live for whatever pleases them most, for whatever is best for them and for their families. <coughs> they do their own thing and then they try to cram in and put a little Jesus around the edges, right? Like, Jesus, you can have the Sunday compartment or maybe the Sunday morning compartment or maybe not always the Sunday morning compartment, so maybe just, just when I happen to show up at church compartment, right? Like, you can have that one. And maybe we'll go to a, a Bible study or a growth group or something, so you can have a little bit of compartment there too. And then for the most part, we just we want to live as good people but we're not, we're not so sure we want to be fanatics. We're not sure we want to be all in. And to that, I think Jesus says to his church, to us, to all those that would call themselves Christ followers, I think he says, you're only fooling yourself. Anybody who wants to be my disciple, my follower, Jesus says, must put me first. Anybody who doesn't give up everything, he says, cannot be my disciple. To be honest, the family stuff you mentioned, you know, hating your father, mother, brother, sister, whatever uh, kind of thing, it's only an example that he's giving of things that we, that we tend to hold back from God. They're really just excuses that we use to not sort of allow God to have full control of our lives. You'd be amazed at how often I hear things or hear people say things, and I get it. I mean, I, I get where they're coming from. I've probably said similar things in my days uh, as well, but... People that'll they'll have a real sense that God's speaking to and I'm calling into something. Sometimes I'll find somebody that'll be like, they'll have a call and they're like, man, I think God's calling me to ministry. We had a few people in our church up in Wisconsin that would say this to me. they say, man, I, I feel like God is calling me to ministry. But they're like, but I can't do that. I mean, I got young kids. I got obligations. You know, I'm not financially very stable. So, so they'd say, you know, maybe when I'm older, maybe when I have more of a financial base, then I can follow God's will for my life. Then I can step into what it is that God's calling calling me to. Again, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up everything. Or sometimes you'll hear people that, are, that have kids that are maybe a little bit older or something, and, and uh, God will be nudging them saying, man, I, they put, God's put a passion in you to make a difference in serving the poor or in starting a ministry or stepping up and leading in the church or teaching or who knows what. I mean, some, some kind of thing that God's nudging you to and he's kind of consuming you and you're, you're becoming convinced, I think this is God. I think God is speaking. And your answer most often, again, I hear this kind of stuff all the time is, well, my kids are in school. We're like crazy busy. I can't do that now. I mean, we're doing this, we're doing that, my job, and this and that and the other thing. And Jesus says, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up right? The crazy thing is this happens at every stage of life because people always say, well, when I retire or something, then, and you know what? I can't, I've heard this, I don't know, a hundred times probably where people, when they retire, they'll say the same thing. They're like, you know what? Oh yeah, God, I, you know, I know the church needs this. I know, I, I mean, I want to do this. I have this passion, but I don't have the energy that I, that I used to. And, and you know, I'm still, I'm the busiest I've ever been in my life. Maybe younger people should do that. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it's an excuse that we use. It's, it's, it's our way. We don't, we don't think of this. But it's our way of saying, this is, this is something I'm not willing to give to you, God. I don't trust you with that part of my life. I'm not all in. <clears throat> I'm not saying, I know, again, am I saying, oh, you can never have, you know, that God doesn't want you to have boundaries or, the, you know, what? No, of course not, right? I mean, I, but, that's, but he is asking us to surrender it all and say, God, what do you want from me? Now, does God want you to rest sometimes? Will he prompt you to rest sometimes? 
Of course he will. Will God prompt you to invest in your family and your wife and your husband and your kids? Of course he will. But there's a difference between saying, God, you can't have this. This is mine. I'm going to do what I want. And saying, I'm all in, God. Teach me how to live my life. Teach me how to parent. Teach me how to, how to be married. Teach me how to handle my money. Teach me how to be the best employee there is. I am yours. You see the difference? Jesus says, anybody who comes to me and isn't prepared to lay their lives out before me cannot be my disciple. In Matthew's uh, telling of this exact same teaching, he throws this in just to, just to remind us that the only way to save our lives is by surrendering them to Christ. He says this, whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. Whoever tries to hold on right to their own life in the here and now, whoever loves this life and clings to it and tries to control it and hold on to it and, and do their own, you know, kind of their own thing in their own way. Jesus says, if you hang on to that, you will lose everything. But for those who voluntarily lay it down, who give up their lives, who surrender them to Christ, they will find life like they've never known. Friends, when we withhold from God, when we withhold from God, we start withering in our souls. But it is in abandon where we come alive. Right? That's the teaching from Jesus. When we withhold, we start withering. We start shriveling up and dying. And when we abandon, we come alive. That's the picture. That's the picture straight from the lips of Jesus. And this stuff is true. Think with me for a minute. I was thinking this week just about um, some of the uh, examples of this from Scripture when people withhold from God. Like I was thinking about Adam and Eve, right? There's one stinking rule in the Garden of Eden. What is it? Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? What's the one thing they wouldn't give up? Right? The fruit. Oh, yeah, but they took it. Oh, this is great. We're going to do it anyway. They took it. Man, what, was the, what were the consequences for that? They withheld that from God. Sin and death and destruction come into the world. I was thinking, we've got all these moms that are having babies. I think of this every time, right? Part of the, part of the consequence of that action of withholding from God is increased pains in child, in, uh, uh, child delivery, right? There's a bunch of moms that are going to kick the crap out of Adam and Eve up in heaven one day, right? Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> like, are you out of your mind? But I mean, all these consequences came because there was one, just one thing, one thing that they withheld. Oh, they wanted, they believed in God. They wanted to follow, they wanted a little bit of Jesus around here. They wanted a little bit of God around here, but they, but not this. This, this is one thing you can't have. Think about Jonah, right? Jonah is a prophet. He's a, he, he was a, God-following man. But there's one thing that he was not willing to give up. Man, do not send me to the people of Nineveh because I don't, I want to see them destroyed. I did not want your grace to be, I don't want you to forgive them. I don't want you to bring them home. I don't want to, none of that. I'm going to look like an idiot in front of your people. I will not give that to you. And so he runs away and what happens to Jonah? Right? Ends up in the belly of a fish, right? Not such a, it takes a, takes a three-day lap around the, the Mediterranean or something, right? Like, what in the world is going on? But it's one thing, and think of the consequences that come from that. You keep going, King David, right? 
This is, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. Man, there, he had a lot of God, right? He wanted a lot of God. But there was one thing in his life that he's like, you know what? Man, he wanted to have a little thing going on the side with Bathsheba. He said, man, I'll follow you and I'll worship you and I'll whatever, but, but, but not this. He withheld that and, man, the consequences of that destroyed his family. I mean, his own son tried to kill him. Another son ended up dead in the midst of I mean, it's a horrible story. You read this and you think, man, it stems back to one thing He's, that he was withholding, holding back from God. He just wouldn't surrender. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, what was their one thing? Remember this? Ananias and Sapphira, right? kind of thing, the uh, people in the early church that, that came and they brought their uh, they brought their tithe, their money uh, before God and said, oh, this is everything that we are from the sale of some land and stuff. They, this is everything we received. They wanted to look better than they actually were, but they held some back for themselves. They said, we're going to, we want our, we got to have the reputation. We want to look like we're generous and we're all this kind of stuff, but we're not going to actually be that way in our own hearts. One thing, they're like, no, we're going to look better. We, we need some of that money. We want some of that money for ourselves. They killed them. All right, it cost them their lives. I'm going to come back to it again, right? When, when we withhold from God, it brings destruction. We start to wither in our own souls. It is only through abandon that we come alive. With me? Martin Luther uh, puts it this way. He says, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing, right? Here's my question to us today. I wonder if there is an area in your life that you are withholding from God. Maybe, maybe there's more than one, but I wonder, if there's, I wonder if there's something that you know, right? God's been talking to you about. You know what God's will is for you. You know what, you know what he's nudging you on. You know what he's been speaking to you about. That you're like, no, I want a little bit of Jesus. I want a little bit of church. I want, maybe even I want a whole lot. I want a King David portion, but you can't have this. I wonder if there's an area in your life that God's, God's been speaking to you about and saying, man, it's time to move from withholding to abandon. I wonder if there's an area that you can, some of us can identify it right away. We know exactly what it is. Others of us maybe would be like, well, I don't know. I mean, I, and if so, if that's you, if nothing comes to mind, I'd encourage you even to spend some time thinking about it this week, journaling, maybe even praying, saying, God, is there something in me that, that I'm withholding from you that you want me to surrender? And again, the reason, the, the motivation for this, it's not like a top-down God's trying to whatever. It, it's because he, want, he, he knows and he teaches. This is why he does it. It's because it's in abandon where we come alive. That's where the good stuff is found. There's nothing better in life than following Jesus. There's nothing better, bar none. And this is the path to life. If God brings something up for us, if there is an area that we are withholding, I wonder if today God is just nudging us to lay it down, to surrender it, to ask for forgiveness, to receive his grace, and with his help step back in line and say, God, I'm all in with you. Now, I get that this is a hard topic. I get this is counterculture. I shared with our, our uh, team that's leading our, our servers uh, today, serving team today. 
Uh, like this is a really hard teaching. I mean, it is. And, and I, get, I, I get even that it can come off a little bit legalistic, or it can come off like you got to do these things to earn your way to God and to kind of earn right relationship with him. And I just want to say if it comes off that way, uh, then I haven't finished the story. So let me just let me just because that is not at all true. It's not that we have to do these things to earn God's approval. He's laying out for us how life works best. And I would be remiss if we didn't come back and talk to you about the person that has lived this and modeled this out the best in human history, and it's Jesus. He's the one who, uh, first and foremost, found his life by abandoning his will to the Father. He found his crown, right, by choosing and embracing and following the Father's will to the cross. He's the one that paid the price for the sins of the world, even though it was excruciatingly painful, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory forever. Right? This is Christianity. This is Jesus following what we're talking about. We would be remiss if we don't remember that the Savior has already come. He has already he, he counted the cost. He was all in with the Father. He did his will, poured out his life to the end, and showed us it, and opened up for us the path to life. Friends, you and I cannot earn our way to, into God's good graces. We can't deserve it. We'll screw it up. I screw it up. You screw it up. We do it all the time. And yet, this morning, the God of all grace, because of Jesus, right, offers us Forgiveness. He offers us a second chance. He offers us and is calling us home. I, I, I thought it was f- just cool <laughs> the, this week as I was studying this passage to, to go back to the, the, actually the few verses before this, before uh, this passage which, in which Jesus is talking, and to take a look because, um, um, because Jesus actually sets this passage up before he talks about counting the cost and being all in and carrying your cross and all this kind of stuff. He sets it up by telling this parable um, about a great banquet. It starts uh, with verse 14. He, and he, he paints this picture and says, uh, he said, boy, my kingdom, life with me is sort of like uh, somebody that is going to hold a great banquet and he makes all kinds of preparations, right? He, he, he goes out and gets the best food and the best whatever. He sets up chairs and tables and rents the hall and the band and the whole, the whole shebang. And then he sends out uh, servants into the, into the community to those that were invited to let them know, hey, everything is now ready, so come. There's going to be a feast. Come and hang out with the king come and hang out with the, the guy that's doing the banquet. It's going to be great. Come and enjoy. And, and one by one, uh, the people that are invited start making excuses. The first one says, oh, man, love to come, but I'm busy. I just bought some land. Got to go kind of check it out. Like, like it, is it different than it was yesterday? Or like it's land. But, but I, I can't make it. I'm too busy with that kind of stuff. Next guy comes up and says, well, i got to test drive some oxen right later on uh, today. It's like the 2018. It's sweet, baby. You wouldn't believe these. I mean, you got, but I can't make it. I'm busy. The third one says, well, I just got married. I mean, I can't make it. Sorry. Newlyweds. Got, got too much going on. And so the, the master uh, says, well, in that case, I want you to go out to the city streets and to the alleys and to find anybody you can. Find the broken, the hurting, find those pe- people that are in need and invite them. Let them know that the banquet is ready if they'll just come in, if they'll just receive the invitation and come. 
And they go out and they do that. And they said, there's still room. He says, well, go out even further. Go out into the rural areas. Go out, go out to the highways and the byways all the way out and so that my house may be full. He said, but take note of this. Those that were invited that were too busy won't even get a taste of my banquet. I share that with you because I think this is the heart of God in this teaching today. It's hard. It's harsh. I get it. But this is the heart of God. It's the heartbeat of Jesus. He's calling to you and to me this morning. He's calling, come home, come in. All the preparations have been made through Jesus, right? He has made a way available for us to come back home into God's family, for us to have our sins and our past forgiven, for us to get invited into his presence, into his family, to the feast, right? For now, all the way through eternity. And he's, he's crying out, just come. Don't let any excuse stand in the way. <laughs> don't, don't let any anything rival God for that spot. But just come. Don't let anything stop you. Would you just come this morning? I don't know where you're at with God this morning, friends. I'm not sure exactly uh, what he's saying to you. Maybe you're here and you have never before opened up your heart and life to God that way before. And if that's you, friends, I would say the, the living God is speaking to you today. And he's calling out your name and saying, would you come? All things are now ready. Would you just come? I love you. I want to forgive you. I want to make you new. I want to put you on the path to the life you were born for. If you just come, come and eat. Come and be with me. Come and join my family. Come. Don't let anything stand in the way. If you have never responded to God before, I'd encourage you to do it today just to open up your heart and say, Jesus, I need you. I want to come. Would you forgive me for my sin and my junk and whatever else? And would you lead me and be my God? And with your help, I'm all in. I want to follow you. I'll screw up. I'll mess up, I'm sure. But would you pour out your grace? Would you just teach me and lead me and empower me to walk with you and to follow you? Maybe some of us have prayed that kind of prayer before, but if we're, if we're honest, and maybe we even, uh, I was talking to Paul earlier, and said, or, or suddenly the campus pastor, and said, it's like a daily, a moment-by-moment struggle sometimes, because we'll put God first, and we'll, we'll say, yeah, I'm all in, God, and we are in our hearts, and then, uh, you know, the next day I get up, and there's something shiny in my path, and I'm like, ooh, what's that, right? That's, that's nice. Let's get a little closer. Let's focus on that. Let's Right? I mean, some of that, it's a moment by moment learning to walk and follow and trust and put him first. And so maybe we've done that in the past, but if we're honest this morning, we're like, you know what? Something else has caught my heart. Something else has my attention. There's something else that, that, that I've been pursuing and going after that has surpassed God. And if that's you, man, this morning, I think the living God is calling to you too. And he is calling you home. He's saying, you know what? Would you put those things down? I mean, I know it's shiny. I know it looks great. But, but remember, when we withhold, we start to wither inside, right? We start to shrivel up and die. And it's, it's in abandon that we come to life. That we come to life. We come alive kind of thing. So maybe he's just saying to you, man, it's time to lay that down. It's time to... Just put it down. Turn towards home and cry out, cry out to him again as well. Just saying, God, would you come? Would you forgive me for, for letting little stupid things capture my heart and my attention? Would you, would you forgive me for the excuses that have kept me from home? 
Would you wash me and cleanse me? And, and with your help, I want to get back on track. I want, to, I want to open up my heart and life to you again and say, I am yours. Friends, the path of the disciple, the path of the Christ follower is a path that's all in. Right? It's the path to saying, God, I need you. Right? I need your grace and your love. And I want to be with you and follow you. Let's close in prayer. God, that's our cry this morning. Lord, I think all of us probably in one way or another are in the same boat that way. We have been distracted. We've used excuses. We have withheld um, areas of our lives, sometimes small, sometimes big, from you. Instead of coming to the best banquet there is, instead of coming into your presence and feasting and enjoying and coming to life, uh, we have turned aside to lesser things. Would you forgive us, God? Would you cleanse us? because of Jesus. Would you pour out your grace and your mercy on us? Would you make us new? And God, I pray today, in this moment even, just teach us, empower us, help us as we cry out and say, God, I want you to be first. I want to follow you. I want to be your kid. I want to live in your kingdom and in right relationship with you. I want to know your presence and your power. I want to seek your face and your smile. I want to bask and delight in you and with you. Would you come and be our Savior and at the very same time come and be our God? We open up our hands, we open up our hearts, we open up our lives to you and say, come Lord Jesus, come and have your way. May your kingdom come and your will be done here in my life, every compartment, every part, as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name.